This is Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha. In this series, we revisit our favorite discussions from High Alpha Speaker Series events. Welcome to our monthly speaker series. And each week, we'll introduce you to the industry leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and investors running everything from breakout SaaS companies to professional racing teams and beyond. I am really, really excited for this conversation. You'll hear ideas that will inspire you to overcome obstacles. There's no construction manual when you start your first company. Become a better leader and try new things. When I see a new product category that someone says, like, it's the dumbest thing ever. Oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Because after all, good leaders are always learning. You are not expected to know the answer. Instead, you're expected to learn the answer. Get ready to build better habits. We are what we repeatedly do. And embrace conflict. Conflict is healthy. Conflict should be expected. With inspirational interviews from High Alpha. Welcome back to Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha. My name is Emma Ryan, and I'm super excited to share today's episode with you all. For those of you new to the show, we revisit High Alpha Speaker Series events, and season two is all about investor interviews. In today's episode, we're revisiting our Speaker Series event from January 2021 with Mary Grove, managing partner at Bread and Butter Ventures. You'll hear Mary give advice on the importance of being proactive in hiring diverse talent, her role in elevating the startup ecosystem in Minneapolis, and how she inspires those in underserved communities. As someone living in the Midwest, I loved hearing her take about how there's so much opportunity here to build breakout companies beyond the coasts. And at High Alpha, we certainly agree. And with that, let's jump into it. All right, Mary, what do you say? Let's do it. (laughs) All right. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. I'm Eric Tobias partner here at High Alpha. And uh, this is our 51st speaker series. And uh, I'm not sure how many of those are virtual, but in person. And uh, we're thrilled that we can continue these and, and, and extend the opportunity to meet with so many amazing folks around the country. And we have really one of uh, my favorite people today, Mary Grove. Mary, for those of you who, who didn't look her up, who don't know who she is, you're in for a real treat. Mary attended Stanford both as an undergrad and graduate and uh, started her career at Google and had a long, illustrious set of experiences, which we'll certainly unpack today. She then spent a couple years with Steve Case at uh, Revolution and uh, got to get to know Mary really through that experience. We sit on a board together and uh, really enjoyed partnering on, on a number of different things. And, uh, and, and now she's in the process, uh, uh, she started her own firm and she's in the process of, of getting that off the ground. So uh, we'll, we'll unpack all those professional accomplishments as well as a lot of work that she does in the nonprofit space and maybe even touch a little bit on, on family. So Mary, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Eric. It's a real pleasure to be here and really appreciate everyone taking an hour to spend with us today and, and kick off the new year here. First of all, where are you coming to us from today, Mary? Where are you Where are you based now? I'm coming to you live from my new home city, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Moved to Minnesota about three years ago from the Bay Area. So exciting place to call home. Kicking off my third winter here. <laughs> well, that'll be that'll be fun to get into for 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 sure. Maybe just to kick us off, um, if you wouldn't mind. You, you know, where'd you grow up? What were you into as a kid? How'd you get to Stanford? Maybe, maybe maybe give us a little of that origin story. Sure, sure. So I had a really, you know, incredibly fortunate upbringing. My parents um, were immigrants from Thailand who grew up in, you know, rural villages without electricity. And it was a very classic quintessential American dream story of, you know, coming here in search of a, of a brighter future. They actually met in the U.S., got married, raised three children and started and ran small businesses together for over 30 years. And so I grew up in a very scrappy, uh, bootstrapping immigrant family. And I was born in in Iowa. Um, My dad was in chiropractic school, Davenport, Iowa. But we quickly, we moved to California when I was three. So I grew up in San Diego in paradise. And I was a really great upbringing. You know, it was seven days a week as part of one of the various family businesses. And really got to know the value of the tenacity and grit that is required for entrepreneurship and seeing 
the failures and success through my parents' lens, it, it really motivated me. And I felt privileged to have the opportunity to, to be here and to kind of be a part of that, that American dream story. So I did do my undergrad and grad degrees at Stanford, but found a circuitous route. You know, if they say if at first you don't succeed, try again. So I didn't get in my, my first time as an undergrad. And I did my freshman year at Fordham University in Manhattan, which was also a wonderful experience. And I, I fell in love with the city, ended up moving back there in my 20s for five years as part of my time at, at Google, but tried again. And so lo and behold, got into Stanford as a sophomore, transferred. And that was a really pivotal stepping stone for me because I ended up, you know, accidentally in the in the backyard of tech in Silicon Valley was not my intention to go into tech. And, you know, two decades later, I really couldn't, couldn't imagine a different life than, than one of, of tech and really working with early stage companies. Hmm. Did you always know, like when you were in middle school, high school, you always knew you wanted to go to Stanford and, and just kind of had that, had that dream. How, how did you have the tenacity to want to keep, keep at it? You know, my parents instilled in us just a huge, the value of, of education and the heart, the ethics of hard work. We, we were not, uh, you know, financially well off. And, and it was these, a lot of these large institutions seem out of reach. Now there are a lot of great financial aid programs as the universities become more competitive, but my parents sacrificed and scrapped and, you know, put us through, they actually sent us to Catholic schools until college and just really put this, this notion of higher education up on a pedestal. So Stanford to me was the culmination of a lot of things. It was, you know, great, obviously great academic program, but the ability to, to be in California and to, I, I applied to a bunch of places, but I think because my parents had moved halfway around the world and left their families, and which was very, very difficult to do for my siblings and me, we all went to school in, in big cities away from home. And mm. my parents used to joke, you know, for, for us, we're, they're, we're all very close as a family, but their three kids were living in San Francisco, Chicago, and New York city. And so I think that sense of it's okay to, they really supported our dreams. And I knew that whatever, and that goes for everything from career to city to choice of life partner, you know, and, and it's definitely influenced my goals as a parent now. That's amazing. Yeah. It's awesome. So you, you find yourself in the backyard of, of tech. And I mean, even at Stanford, those of us who have been fortunate to spend time on that campus, you, you can't help, but kind of ooze entrepreneurship and, and technology, but you find yourself in, in, in the backyard of everything that's going on. And uh, there's this little company with a couple thousand employees called Google. How, how did you decide that that was the place you wanted to get started? Honestly, it was by serendipitous luck and, and almost by accident. So I was very set on the path of, I've always been very passionate about international development and women's issues were, were two of the big themes of mine, which still continue on, you know, today as big areas of focus, but it hadn't occurred to me that technology could be the great enabler of that. And I had studied international policy. I was doing a fellowship at Stanford through Stanford and government at the United Nations in Bangkok. So very cool to go back to my home country in many ways. And I was working on a project to combat human sex trafficking and figured I would go to law school. So I had applied to law school, a bunch of schools, and was waiting to hear back. But at, at, on campus at Stanford, a number of, of places were recruiting. And I ran into the small Google booth at the career fair and thought, I should just toss my hat in the ring and, and just see. And so I began the application process, which you know is notoriously very long and thorough. And I had, I think, 12 rounds, but eight of them were on site in one day which I, I was prepared to do a one hour interview. So by the end of the process, I really felt like I'd fallen in love with the company's values. I had met literally everyone I would be working with and there felt like a, a great cultural fit. And so I was very fortunate to be hired in to, so I thought I'll, I'll go work in the legal department for a year. So I started as the most junior level possible as a legal assistant, but that was the year that Google was going public. And so I was staffed, to work on the IPO deal team immediately. We worked with outside counsel on the transaction, but of course there's a lot that only internal employees can, can 
have access to. And so I was part of the the deal team and works literally seven days a week. My first, it was about eight months before we went public and just heads down, learned a lot about the business very quickly, learned a lot about corporate securities, which was an area I had zero background in. And just, again, became enamored by the, the vision and spent a lot of time with our founders, Larry and Sergey, through that process. So I was hooked after a year and said, I, I no longer want to pursue the law school route. I want to stay at Google and want to switch gears. And so I was very lucky to get to join uh, a team called New Business Development, which at the time we were 2000 people globally. It was literally a catch-all for everything non-product and engineering. So how do we license content, license technology, patent cross licenses? How do we basically partner with the business partner for Google product and engineering teams to help bring a product successfully to market and get those initial partnerships off the ground. So it was a very sort of blue sky, uh, small team. And I had incredible mentors in, in that work. So that was the beginning of, of the next phase for me. Wow. You know, those of us who know Google today, you know, it's a huge company, 100,000 employees. It's changed the world. 2,000 employees for, for many of those on the line who work in a small startup, 2,000 employees sounds like a lot, but 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 it really isn't in, in, in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, talk a little bit about, I, I want to hear about your functional role, but before we get there, just talk about what it was like to be part of the evolution of the Google culture, the, the, the Google rise, you know, looking around left and right, new people arriving every week. You know, what, what do you take from that today that, that you kind of learned through that experience? Great question. You know, I think as a as a leader of a team or a company or for the founders, you know, on the on the call, it's so paramount to think about that culture and values piece from day one. And it's when we grow quickly and we're forced to grow quickly, it's you know, sometimes we can just run faster than than we have time to put down those foundational blocks. But for me, it felt like the proactive care and concern and, and willingness to never compromise on core values around culture, transparency, establishing those early and then disseminating them. I was a part of, it would be interesting to, to talk more about Google today, but when I, I left in 2018, we were over 100,000 people already. And one observation I had was the culture, it really did scale. It was really special. You know, we had to leverage technology and things couldn't always be simultaneous, but it was again, Simple things, but major things like the company's mission, which Larry and Sergey wrote in 1999, right, which is to organize all the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. And the mission itself was so grandiose, had room to expand. But the key thing was every single employee, if you ran to them in the, the micro kitchen, you know, water cooler, coffee station, could recite it from heart. And the di- different pieces would mean different things to different teams and people. And I always was struck by that of, wow, that's, that's huge. But other mantras or standards that we had, you know, one, another one was don't be evil, which sounds super basic, but it's actually, you know, a very powerful uh, mantra as you think about some of these nuanced decisions that carry a tremendous amount of weight, especially in the environment we're in today. Yeah. Things about, you know, transparency, accountability, be, making data-driven decisions, and so it was really special. And I think, you know, scaling an organization from 100,000 to maybe 500,000, then we have another set of operational challenges. But it goes back to that culture, values, transparency, and just doing your best to make sure that everybody is continually on the same page with those things. Hmm. So you, thank you. That's really fascinating. I, I could, we could spend all, all day on Google and the culture of Google and how that has scaled. But, but, one of the things that struck me and just digging into to your background as I prepared for this was just the international experience as well. You know, Google, <laughs> Google's the definition of a, of a global company, but it was kind of early on. Maybe talk about some of that experience that you were, you were a part of. Absolutely. So through that, that my second role of three at Google, so new business development, that was about a big part of it was about market expansion opportunities for the company, including and for the products as well. And so I was very lucky. We were part of a, was part of a small group that worked on this project called the bottom 40, 
which referred to the 40 least connected countries in the world from an access perspective. And the idea was, let's, let's analyze them and figure out from both a Google Inc. corporate perspective and a Google.org philanthropic perspective, what role can Google play in furthering economic development in these places? And so that was wildly interesting work that brought me to a lot of, I've spent time on the ground for Google in about 40 countries and a lot of time in the Middle East, a lot of time in, in Central Asia, for example. I actually moved to Zurich which was the, is the engineering, is the headquarters for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And, and that, again, to the, your point about building a global company, Google knew, right? Switzerland has incredibly friendly policies towards working visas and immigration. Our team there in Zurich had 46 nationalities represented. And so thinking about when you build a company strategically, how to globally align yourself for success and, you know, do teams need to be in-country? Where do they need to be? Where does it make sense from a corporate headquarters? Where does it make sense from a talent visa perspective? But that taught me a lot. And, and the three main things that we worked on, the first was access itself. How do you help create better internet and mobile penetration with creative partnerships with internet service providers, mobile carriers? The second big bucket was around content. How do we help more content, drive the creation of more content and index it and translate it and make it available on the web. And so at the time, for example, I was doing a lot of work in the Middle East and 5% of the world's population at the time spoke Arabic and 1% of the content on the web was in Arabic. So big opportunity for user-generated content, for you know, blogs and, and video creation, for actually helping partner with local media companies to bring more content online. And then the third bucket, which was really what drove the next six years of my career, was around entrepreneurship. And that is, you know, largely where I caught the bug that I definitely still have today. But it was this idea that when we go into these very emerging markets, yes, there's opportunity for Google to have an impact directly. But if we could be a platform for students, developers, universities, accelerators, a lot of the infrastructure that exists today that didn't exist back in, you know, 2008, 2009, that was the strategy. And so I ended up moving back to the headquarters, moved back to California in 2010. And our executive team said to me, you know, you're already doing a lot of this work through your new business development. We have so many other teams of the company who are dabbling in local projects to support entrepreneurship. We don't have a dedicated effort. Do you want to try? Let's, let's do a pilot. You could start a team with real headcount and budget to deploy against this. So that out of that was born. Google for Entrepreneurs, which is called now called Google for Startups. But we created that, that team as essentially an umbrella to help organize Google's efforts to invest in startups, but also as important in ecosystems around the world. And, and that is how we thought about the play, both from a depth and a breadth perspective. So, you know, depth is we'll have direct programs to work directly with early stage companies. Breadth is we partnered with roughly a hundred of, I believe the best organizations in the world, all over the world who are, you know, a lot in the U S were, were the early first wave of co-working spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of, you know, organizations focused on supporting underrepresented founders, a lot of people thinking about the earliest days of online education, the coding boot camps in the era of, you know, galvanize mm-hmm. was an early player in that space. And so we, we try to bring the best of Google, our money, our financial resources, our people, our technology, and really proud of that. That chapter was just a highlight of my life where, you know, we, we grew it to 130 countries. We had about 400,000 entrepreneurs and the team continues to, to rock and roll today. That's amazing. Amazing. Congratulations, number one. Thanks. And uh, it, 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 thank you for sharing it. I want to continue to unpack it. I, I Listening to you, it, it, it this feels like a good place to, to maybe double click on, you know, you, you, you mentioned early on, you, you've always been passionate about women's related issues. And, you know, as I'm listening to you talk about the, the, the global scope of Google, just the impact in these developing countries that, that you were able to have and, and Google is able to have, you know, I'm curious for those who are watching this today and thinking about diversity and inclusion, 
in 2021 and you know maybe not operating at the scale that Google operated at when you were there you know what are some of the things that you personally took from all those experiences and are trying to reapply now with entrepreneurs sure and i think that and it's a great frame of you know a lot of it applies to women specifically but it also applies to underrepresented groups in general, you yes. know, all definitions of that word. And so, and we can unpack, there's there so many different, I guess, situations, specific cases, but in general, the, the bucket of how do we democratize access to people who historically have not had the same level of access. Um, and, I, and I do, I think it starts with a one person team, a two person team. Now, you know, I'm part of a three person team at, at Bread and Butter Ventures and all of this applies. The beauty is yes, I got to test a lot of things in the Petri dish of Google at, at scale, and we can kind of extrapolate some of the things that work well. So one, I think is, you know, setting clear goals and targets and values associated with how you want to build your team and your business and being pretty transparent about them. So for example, when we launched Bread and Butter Ventures, we published our current diversity metrics for the founders we were working with, but also what our goals are. And we intend to publish that data, you know, at least twice a year to hold ourselves accountable. A lot of work is happening in the industry around data and transparency, but as important as sharing externally is just setting that target, you know, within yourself, how are we doing as an organization? But I think with respect to, so I'll give you an answer on the macro level and then the micro level, yeah. on the macro level for the industries that we're both in today you know, I think about venture capital, the statistics are astounding, right? Of less than 10% of venture capital goes to female founders, less than 1% goes to African-American founders. Roughly, I think it's between six and 7% of general partners or, you know, the check writers at VC firms are female, less than 1% are African-American. So we know the state of the union, but how do we fix it? And it really is about every layer of that stack. So, you know, the funds ourselves, who invests in us? Who are our limited partners at the LPs who put capital in? How do we uh, diversify that? And it, part of it has to do with shifting the paradigm of who gets to invest today or what are the minimums or you know, how do you get referred in to a, to a fund to get an allocation? So there's that, who's investing in the funds? And then there's a level of the roles that we have. Who are the partners who are getting to make investment decisions and deploy capital? And how do we diversify that? If you ask anybody, who is fortunate enough to be in one of the few seats of a, of a venture capitalist, I guarantee you there's no linear answer to how we came to be in that seat. And so and it's such a network-driven business, which I am all about. Nothing's more important to me than relationships, but it infuriates me to no end that it is a network, a closed network-driven uh, business. And it's not, it's not a meritocracy, you know, in that way. Yeah. So there's diversity at that level. And then there's the diversity, of course, of who are the portfolio companies who, who get the funding and how do we ensure that I've seen it. Our, the talent is there. The pipeline is there. That is an easy excuse for, you know, for, for why portfolios don't look the way they could. But there is an issue of the culture around supporting entrepreneurs once they do decide to start a company. You have to have a social safety net of, you know, what about childcare? What about health insurance? What about... You know, not everyone can bootstrap and not take a salary for six to 12 months, right? So what about the safety net features there? And then once we've chosen to invest, something that we work really hard on with our teams is not just recruiting diverse talent, but actually helping retain diverse talent. And there's, you know, a lot of resources that we can help our companies figure out how, how to do that. And then we also think about diversification of who sits on your board, for example. So you know, if we lead around and have a board seat, maybe one of our partners will take the seat directly. But if not, and if that's not the best fit for whatever reason, we're working really hard to develop a deep bench of board level talent who has either deep se uh, sector or functional expertise to say, okay, this, this board is missing or an independent board seat that needs to go to somebody who's deep in the ag tech space or who has, you know, phenomenal consumer marketing experience. And so, that's that answer on, on the macro. On the micro level, the small things that you can do, and I experienced this firsthand as I have four-year-old twins, boy-girl twins, and it's been an amazing uh, experience and very crazy to where 
multiple hats as many of both, I'm sure the all, all types of parents on the call experience, but has given me such a greater empathy for, and I just am really clear about my own boundaries and, and what they are. But some of the simple things that we found are, you know, changing the time of events from not just happy hours and, and dinners or not just always 7.30 or 8 a.m. breakfast. Like think about varying the time of day. That dramatically increases female participation. Another thing we saw is simply declaring and announcing efforts can help retain, bring in and retain more women. So for example, one of the co-working spaces I work with at Google uh, announced that they were going to be running a female-focused accelerator program, which they were going to, but it was like three months out. In that period, they saw a 25% increase of new member signups to the space in general, which maintained over time. And it was sort of, think about the signals that you're sending out, that we are a place that is open for business to people of all types. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super important. And, and you know, in, I think now our industry is, is focused on this um, in a way that's new and different. You could argue, you know, that should have been done before. I'm a, I'm a, you know, dashboard kind of guy versus a rearview mirror kind of guy, and and, uh, you know, I'm glad that we're we're all thinking and talking and and, and acting uh, on it. But I think someone with your experience who has seen diversity in kind of all it means, you know, going into a developing country and seeing an entrepreneur operating there you know, that's a very diverse experience. And, and then being able to bring that back and, 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 and apply that today, I think is just, is very profound. So, so thank you for, for sharing that. I do want to get to, to, to your VC career, but, but before we skip over what is, was a very rich period of your life in leading Google for entrepreneurs, which is now, you know, Google for startups, Amazing opportunity there to, to empower entrepreneurs. And when I think about our many of our early stage companies at High Alpha and kind of what they're doing, you know, a lot of it is is because of companies like Google who have made uh, things more accessible and really democratized access for startups. You know, walk us through kind of what what the hope was and you know what what you think what you think was accomplished. Great question. It's a great question. You know, I was very proud to work for a company who viewed corporate engagement in the ecosystem in a very different way than many big tech companies do. And don't get me wrong, anytime a corporation has an engagement effort around startups in the ecosystem, I'm two thumbs up all about it. But Google did it in a very unique way where we deployed, in the time that I was leading the effort, we deployed over $100 million of Google's capital into these ecosystems without any direct financial return target, right? Meaning we weren't, we didn't roll up into a product line. We didn't roll up into a sales PNL. And it was, it was really about this idea of long-term investment. If ultimately we can drive more companies being created, more companies coming online, more companies using the internet, that translates into more revenue for Google over time. And it's analogous to some of the work that, you know, Facebook did with Facebook Lite in the early days of, of bringing the mobile app into emerging markets in Africa, for example. There's a very smart, it's a for-profit strategy. We didn't do it as charity work, but it was a long-term view. And then you have to ask yourself, as it scales, how do you measure ROI and success? And so we tended to, we were obsessive about, about data, but it was tracking, you know, of course, total number of active startups in the program, but more importantly, how are they doing? So jobs created, funding raised, economic impact from these, these initiatives, we did, we did track product adoption because while we would never require anybody to use Google products, that would be the most popular question was, obviously, we're a tech company. So we would track, you know, we were the number one driver at the time of new conversions to the Google Cloud platform, for example. So because you have that massive N, that massive volume, it makes sense. But the secondary benefit, and I think something that, that should not be overlooked by tech companies, is there's an incredible brand loyalty that comes with some of these efforts and associating yourself with entrepreneurship. For Google, it's a pretty clear connection given it's a very entrepreneurial tech company, but even for corporations who, you know, are squarely in a different space entirely, 
I think there's a huge benefit. So we would measure that brand sentiment. We would measure what's the impact in a country that, you know, it's a very tricky policy environment. Maybe we're doing a lot of great work for the right reasons, but the secondary benefit is also helps, helps us, our business overall in, in a country that, you know, may be difficult. So there's a lot of factors at play, but very proud of, of the work and the team, you know, has continued to do incredible work in this year in 2020 or last year, I suppose, in a very difficult environment. Some of the early dreams that we had materialized, for example, and they, the team has grown it well beyond those initial dreams, but, you know, they launched the first, the Google Black Founders Fund, right, mm-hmm. to actually award equity grants to startups. And, and that's, that's a huge um, milestone that was very timely in the moment of, of you know, what, what we should be see, hopefully see more of in, in the country. So it was a great chapter and I'm super close with the team and, and, you know, proud of what they're doing. Do, do I remember correctly that you all were part of starting the Lemonade Day initiative? Am I making that up? That's an amazing recall. We were not, we did not start it, but they were one of that. When I mentioned the, the sort of hundred or so partners around the world who were doing phenomenal things, Lemonade Day uh, was one of them. And they were the first effort that we supported specifically in youth entrepreneurship. So for those who haven't heard, Lemonade Day was an awesome uh, nonprofit that basically teaches kids entrepreneurship through the lemonade stand, but they had scaled nationally and had booths everywhere. And, and I don't know if they're still active yeah, today. They're still doing it. Cool. I love it. I mean, that was great. The other youth organization was a, was in India. It was called Jagriti Yatra, which it was a train, literally a, it was a five-day train ride through rural India, where you basically have a, a startup weekend-esque experience on the train. Oh, wow. So, you know, there's just really cool models out there. Yeah. Oh, that's inspiring. Amazing to think that, you know, $100 million can be deployed with no real <laughs> return <laughs> model in sight. I mean, that's just, it's kind of hard to get your head around that. And it happened and- gradually, right? The strategy wasn't, um, it was because it, I humbly think it was because things were going well and there was an impact, right? But in the first year, the first year we, I created a horribly ugly deck Thank goodness, you know, Google didn't value beautiful decks. So I wouldn't have made it that long, but it was sort of like, Hey, pitch us, pitch us the vision. And what do you need? And I think three days later, I met with the senior leadership team and we asked for, it was just me. So like, I, I really, I don't even know what's reasonable. We asked for three headcount and $10 million for the first year. And so that, you know, then continued to grow and grow and grow over time. But yes, I mean, I think if, if the initial ask had been, Hey, let's do hundred million over five years, it, you know, the answer probably would have been no. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think for, for big corporations out there, it'd be cool to just, you know, I'd encourage you to just experiment and start with something small and, and manageable. But as we began to find these incredible partners around the world, then we started signing multi-year partnerships with them, right? So we'd have to have enough budget to cover three years of commitments. And so it kind of has, has continued to expand. Yeah. Amazing. So 2018, you decide you know, that the, the, the journey needs another chapter and uh, you, you find yourself moving back to, or moving to Minneapolis. Um, and, and you connect up with Steve Case, one of our great friends and, and, and partners with at, at Revolution. Did you identify that, okay, leaving Google, I want to go be a venture capitalist or was it more, you know, just the right pieces and parts that happened to bring it about? I think that the best decisions in my life have never been planned, even though I'm a huge planner, which is kind of good insight, a good self-awareness there. Like maybe the best laid plans aren't the best idea, but the way that unfolded is there is definitely a great combination of professional and personal alignment of, of opportunity at the right, at the right time. And so on the professional front, so I, I first met Steve case through Again, the work that we were doing with Google for Entrepreneurs, we were both on the board of Startup Weekend. He was the chair of the board, which is which is how we met. But then as the notion of, of the effort called Rise of the Rest, which started as the bus tour, then became the fund, which Steve you know, created and championed, we began partnering on that and, and on Google Demo Day as part of cool. that sort of thesis and theme. And so we had known each other for more than five years, and I really respect it, respect him as a leader and respected the vision of this concept of opportunity is not limited to the core coastal hubs. And as somebody who lived and loved 
Silicon Valley, I, I really believed it. So there was that component. And then there was the personal component, which is I was born in Iowa originally. I have family there. I have family in Chicago. But equally importantly, I married a very proud Minnesota native. And those of you who know anyone from Minnesota probably know that it's among the, you know, the largest amount of state pride that I've ever seen. But on my husband's side, we have about a 75 person family in the Midwest, no joke, between Minnesota, Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin. It's a very special thing. And because my family are immigrants, you know, we don't have that in the U.S. They're all in Thailand. And so it felt like in the back of our minds, at the time our kids, our twins were about one. And we thought the professional intrigue of pursuing this thesis of there's so much opportunity between the coasts, plus we could give our children that experience of raising them in the village, plus we could be part of a nascent community full of opportunity and maybe mobilize some outside resources to do a little bit of damage. That was pretty, pretty interesting. So it was right after the, the first Rise the Rest Fund had just kicked off formally. So we decided that it was the right time to, to make that shift. So I moved to Minnesota while the revolution teams in DC, I was sort of the boots on the ground here in the Midwest to, to give that a, a spin. And it was an amazing experience, right? It's such a, such a powerful platform that's investing, you know, 70 cities, 33 states. It was a very, very powerful way to prove that thesis. And it also brought me to this ecosystem, which is now my home and, and gave me the opportunity to bring an outsider insider's perspective. But it's taught me that everything that you might be reading right now is true. And, and three years ago, when we moved here from Silicon Valley, my husband is also uh, was a longtime Google and YouTube executive. People were like, "You are crazy! Are you, did you still keep your house out there?" Are you, you know, and I, I think that uh, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard in your 30s to to rip everything up and completely start from scratch. And it's also so thrilling to be out of your comfort zone. And that's where we are now. You know, fast forward three years later, decided that this pilot experiment is permanent. And then I really am deeply passionate about investing at, at the early stage specifically, and that I wanted to be a part of building, investing in, and investing from my new home community. If I'm going to be long for the next several decades here, I really want to roll up the sleeves and, you know, plant the flag, so to speak. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I, I, I know firsthand from being up there for structural board meetings and your your partnership with Scott Burns, the CEO of Structural and 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 the the broader uh, ecosystem there. You are a, a much needed breath of fresh air as 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 you've come into that community and really you know planted the flag. Other well, than the cold, means a lot. yeah, yeah, of course. Other than the cold, what's been the biggest difference that you've noticed between living in the Twin Cities and living in California? There are a lot of of differences, you know. One big one is the what surprised me, and actually, you know, my my new fund thesis is really predicated on this. But it's what surprised me was the diversity of the economy of Minnesota, right? And I've lived in and come from places where Silicon Valley we have a thriving economy. It's about one thing, right? It's about tech. I spent a lot of time in D.C. It's it's about politics. In Minnesota, we've got an incredibly diverse and very strong corporate backbone. So Minnesota has the highest number of Fortune 500 companies per capita in the nation. We have 57 companies here who do north of a billion dollars a year in revenue. And then we have, we are at the global epicenter of these multi-trillion dollar industries like food and agriculture, like healthcare, healthcare technology, and enterprise software. And so I was struck by that of, wow, you, to engage here uh, intellectually and in a, in a professional way, it's really not just about one sector. So that was really cool. I think from a quality of life perspective, you know, it's, it's people say it, they say like, it's the best place to raise a family. And I was very intrigued by that. Like, is it going to be? Because I don't do winter anything yet, <laughs> but you know, it is proof that, and it's a state of about 5 million people, right? It's, it's, it's less, you have less density than, than you have to contend with in some of your bigger coastal hubs. But a lot of it is done right here. You know, there, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of challenges that I want to be a part of helping address here, 
but things like the public school system is one of the best in the nation, right? Yeah. The, the parks and rec system, the amount of libraries. I live in Minneapolis. I can literally walk to four parks within, within less than 10 minutes, right? And it's sort of this idea that, oh, there was some good urban planning that, that went into it. Um, and then the community, right? The community is small or, or I don't want to say the community is small, but it's a, it's a more tight knit community where people are genuinely kind and willing to help and want to help each other. And I felt that instantly coming in from the outside. People joke that Minnesota is a very hard, they say, if you want to make friends, go back to kindergarten, <laughs> meaning that, you know, people have very full, robust flights here and they, and they maybe don't need, uh, need more, but I haven't found, I found it to be a very welcoming place. And if you're sort of, you know, there are a lot of people like us who either moved here because of one, one spouse is from yeah. here or for work. And the joke is that it's very hard to recruit people in and it is impossible to get them out. Hmm. Well, as a fellow Midwesterner, we're, we're glad to have you back. And you guys uh, are stuck with me yeah. now. So yeah. Yeah. Silicon North Stars. Is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Nonprofit initiative you and your husband started. Did this get started when you moved back? No, it got started. We started it in 2013. So it was right after we got married and we were living in Silicon Valley. We had we were living the dream, so to speak. We had no plans to move back whatsoever. And we were talking, we would go on these nine-mile hikes on the weekends, and we would just riff on things. And we wanted to do something together that was outside of our Google hats and day jobs and find a way to connect you know, where we lived then with where we had roots. And so we created this nonprofit called Silicon North Stars, which is about our mission is about educating and inspiring youth, specifically from economically underserved backgrounds, both in Minneapolis and St. Paul towards futures in, in tech. And so the idea is economically underserved in our community disproportionately maps to students of color. And so could we help them be inspired, have access and get on the path towards, you know, these futures. And so the way it started in 2013 was we we just bootstrapped the first couple of years. We recruited a cohort of of 16 kids who were rising ninth graders, took them out to Silicon Valley. We did a week long best of boot camp, which, you know, was, you got to tour Google and Facebook and YouTube and Stanford and Uber and amazing. you would do design thinking and then you would actually form teams create a startup idea, pitch it a real live demo day. It was basically like recreating part of my, my day job, but for kids. Yeah. And it was incredible. So we start, we started doing that. We immediately knew we needed support in Minnesota because what happens after the camp? So we started doing these, these quarterly meetups in the twin cities afterwards, you know, when the kids start high school to help plug them into the tech ecosystem here. But we we were doing this in California so when we moved here in 2018, the program continued as usual, but in 2019, we experimented for the first time with, hey, the Twin Cities has arrived as an ecosystem. We don't need to go west to be inspired. Let's apply the formula that I just described to here. And so that worked really, really well. 2020 was a tough year with COVID. Obviously, we, we didn't do the in-person camp, but instead we, we pivoted to just fully support our current 120 students with virtual programming, we launched a scholarship program as well for college last year. Mm-hmm. And so we'll keep on, we'll keep on rocking, but I do really credit my experience with Silicon North Stars for being a key driver in my decision, you know, our decision, but ultimately my familiarity with Minnesota enough to think like, Oh, I, I could live there. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, what an incredible uh, gift to to Minnesota and and so neat to work on it with your husband in a, you know, something that leverages all your professional experience, but is not something that is, is, you know, right in the lane of your day job. That's really, really neat. What an incredible way to give back. Thank you. Thank you. It's really special. These students are, I mean, the life stories are remarkable. Many of them have, many of them are immigrants, are refugees. Many of them grew up in refugee camps. Many of them, you know, some are homeless or will be during the course of our program. I just got a, uh, but then there are the moments where I got a, a text yesterday. It was like a panicked, urgent text from one of our students. And I thought, yeah, like let's, let's hop on the phone. turns out he's a junior, but he's, he's has so many advanced credits that 
he just found out yesterday he needs to apply to college by Friday and he can start college next year. And can I write him a recommendation? So <laughs> the future is bright for, you know, the, the takeaway is the future is really, really bright with this next generation. Those are the kind of calls you want to get. That's, that's, that's amazing. Well, I, I definitely want to leave some time for questions, but, but I want to end on maybe the most rich topic, which is now you have hung your own shingle as a VC with bread and butter ventures. You, you have a, partner in in that and I have a lot of questions here but but maybe maybe just start with you know why did you decide that this was what you wanted to do I'd love to know kind of how you went about you know that thought process and what you wanted to shape that into and yeah maybe just 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 talk a little bit about that journey sure so you know when I arrived at the conclusion that hey we're really long for for Minnesota and I'm also very long for investing and this is a long term business that we're in right? Then the question became, what, what does that look like? And funny that we're just talking about Silicon North Star. So through that experience, one of the first people I met in Minnesota was a guy named Brett Broll. And we met through Silicon North Stars because when we were running the program in California, we needed help in Minnesota. He was one of the first to get involved, coach our students, mentor them, support them. Brett is a phenomenal investor and a wonderful human being. His super deep background in food tech and ag tech. Mm. And in addition to creating the Techstars Farm to Fork Food Tech Accelerator, he's also had his own solo GP fund since 2017, which was called the Syndicate Fund, and largely focused on a lot of food tech investing, but also more general investing as well. And so the two of us discussed last year and came to the, the idea that you know we can really together join forces and try to dream of creating world-class tier one brand name venture firm, but instead of Sand Hill Road, you know, here in Minnesota, we would leverage our very different backgrounds, but again, hundred percent overlap in culture and values and the things that we're, that we're committed to. And so last year I joined, joined up with Brett, joined as a GP on his previous fund, the tail end of it. So we deployed, we made nine investments together last year in 2020 across some really exciting companies. And then with me joining, we've, we've basically expanded everything, created bread and butter ventures. We now have, so we have 40 portfolio companies across his first two funds, plus the investments we've made together. And then we're also, you know, building the next chapter and the next version. And so with me joining, we've also, we've honed in on, in addition to food tech, health tech and enterprise software mm-hmm. to round out the core three verticals. And so, and why those three? So bread and butter, first of all, you may not know, it's a, it's a nod to the great state of Minnesota. So we're the bread and butter state, among other nicknames. Hmm, I did not know that. But I didn't know it either until until recently. And I think, you know, more broadly, it's we think that these three sectors, food tech, health tech, enterprise, SaaS, are the backbone or the bread and butter sectors of the modern economy moving forward. And COVID has only accelerated our belief that, you know, these, these industries will never be the same, but we can never afford to underinvest in them. And it's been very exciting. So our strategy is invest nationally, seed stage, sort of pre-seed and seed, early stage companies can be anywhere, but the whole thesis is leverage the Minnesota home field advantage. Mm. And so that is what do we have here? I talked a little bit about it, but we have really strong relationships with Ecolab, Cargill, General Mills, United Health Group, Mayo Clinic, Medtronic, U.S. Bank, Target, 3M, they're all here, right? So it's how do you work with those corporations as uh, LP capital, as help with due diligence, as commercial and customer introductions, as long-term, we hope, a path to M&A and create this virtuous flywheel of, you know, a lot of what we're starting to see that, you know, that you guys were part of creating in Indianapolis, right? We need to create those those exits here and have that flywheel of talent that stays here and creates the next generation. So we are super pumped. We'd love to work with, you know, more early stage companies. We don't just invest in Minnesota. We get that a lot, but about half our investments to date are in the Midwest, about a quarter are in Minnesota. The rest are distributed. And I'm really proud too of the fact that we are to our earlier point, we are seeing a tremendous amount of diverse deal flow as well in every sense of the word. And so the current portfolio of 40 companies we have 43% of them have a founder who's a person of color. 30% have a female founder. We have a lot more work we want to do in that arena. But, you know, I think it's it's very encouraging to see that 
the quality and the diversity of deal flow is, is out there for sure. Wow. Well, we really look forward to doing more with you. It's, it's been fabulous to do some work together through your uh, stint at Revolution. And we love the enterprise uh, sector focus that, that, that will continue to keep us in relationship. We'll align well, for sure. A long, long time. That's good. I've got three questions for you that are like quick, quick hitters, maybe even one word answers. And then we'd love to take some questions. So if anybody has a question, make sure you go to the Q&A section at the bottom and pop the question in and, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to get to it. Word on the street is you love to cook. Is that true? Love it. Absolutely love it. What's the best dish you make? Red curry chicken. Ooh, that sounds good. You know, I'm Thai. So I grew up cooking on my mom's side from age three. And now my kids love to cook with me. So it's like a dream come true because we, we love cooking. We love eating, you know, yes. how we show our love. Uh, yeah, exactly. That sounds amazing. Next time I'm up there, let's, let's, uh, All let's right. the place. <laughs> it's a um, deal. What's the, what's the best place you've hiked? Ooh, I love hiking. Probably I would have to go with Big Sur, the California coast. It's just jaw dropping. Yeah. There's been some cool international ones, but I got to go with my, yeah, yeah. Pretty hard. One of my home States. It's good. It's good. And then I'll end on this one. What is the most gratifying part of having twins? Gratifying part. It's just an overwhelming amount of everything, right? Of joy, love, craziness, insanity, but it is, it's getting to, getting to see two very different individuals, but sort of in this unit, it's just a, I feel incredibly fortunate, but now, and now we're just crossing that four-year-old threshold where they can kind of entertain themselves a little bit more, Yeah, yeah. which has been good too. <laughs> yes. Especially when you're at home a lot. I have, to, I have two, two kids, two cats and a dog in our house. And you know, you may see any number of them in any given day. <laughs> Stay up to date with High Alpha, our portfolio companies, and the future of enterprise cloud. Subscribe to our newsletter to get portfolio updates, new company launch information, and the latest content in your inbox every month. Visit highalpha.com slash newsletter to subscribe. That's highalpha.com slash newsletter. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by Hi Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews and it'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.